Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Radio Westeros, House of the Dragon, Season 1, Episode 5, We Light the Way. Hello and welcome to Radio Westeros. I'm Yoke Boy and it's great to be here to talk about the fifth episode of House of the Dragon called We Light the Way. Today we'll be reacting to and evaluating this episode as well as making plenty of book comparisons because we are hardcore book fans but we'll avoid spoiling the future plot of House of the Dragon and we will have a spoiler section at the end and give you all a heads up for that. So whatever your A Song of Ice and Fire Game of Thrones background, we have a lot to offer and we'll certainly be ready to fill in the blanks about lore and story depth that the show understandably skirts over. So this is the first episode where there hasn't been a significant time jump. It was long enough for Damon to get to the Vale, but considering he has a dragon, the jump is probably days or weeks, not months or years. The episode is primarily concerned with the wedding between Rhaenyra Targaryen and Laenor Valerian discussed last week. Here Viserys travels to Driftmark to formally propose the match and then we build towards seven days of feasts and festivities. With the episode being centred around the union of Targaryens and Valerians, before it aired, fans were asking, why is this episode called We Light the Way, which are the house words of House Hightower and a reference to their famous beacon? Well, friends, all was revealed in good time, and it turns out that a Hightower intervention at a crucial moment was the whole point, and so an apt title after all. This episode gave us a glimpse of the chaos stirring beneath the surface of Viserys' reign. Everyone's trying to appear cordial while manipulating things wherever they can. The reality is that this is leading Westeros towards violence. And in the middle of it all is a young woman who must quickly adapt to the Game of Thrones and whose party dress might carry some significance. This was yet another top draw episode for House of the Dragon. There was just so much attention to detail in every aspect of the writing and the production. My faith in the show just keeps rising, really. And yeah, I do say that as a hard-to-please book snob. So we have so much to share with you today and can't wait to go into some more depth. So let's say hello to my Radio Westeros co-host, Lady Gwyn. 
Hello. Hey, everybody. Thank you for being here. Let's talk about some wedding. I mean, there's a lot to talk about, right? Right, Em? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I figure we wear black to weddings, right? <laughs> yes, that's normal. Yeah. Perfectly normal. Yes. So, yep. Much more on that later. Before we begin our analysis, uh, I want to mention that Radio Westeros is supported by patrons. If you would like to be a patron and get uh, some fun perks, such as early release and patron-exclusive content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Radio Westeros. And I want to give a quick shout-out to our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Palest Milk Glass patrons, Alex, Daniel, Crispy, The Song of Ice, Seth, Kelly, Laura, Sister Winter, Maltu, John Wargarian, and M.T. Walls, first of his name, as well as B-Word and Mr. J, the Bear and the Maiden Fair, and Sir Tim of House Jib Jab Hot Dog Shop, house motto, we forge the chains we wear in life. Thank you, everybody. And as a reminder, we'll have shout outs later for anyone who uses the Super Chat option tonight. And thank you in advance for that. So now, why don't we get started? We are going to go uh, take ourselves right to the Vale. And that is where the episode opened. A lot of us kind of expected that it might happen that way, uh, where we meet the oft-mentioned and never-before-seen Lady Rhea Royce, Damon Targaryen's wife. Uh, Damon has been banished twice so far that we've seen from court and told to return to his wife in what is clearly a backwater of the kingdom. It's uh, it's quite a beautiful backwater, just not one that we think someone like Daemon Targaryen could ever be content in. The uh, aerial shots depict a stunning mountain landscape, and I do believe that these scenes uh, were filmed on location in the Peak District in Derbyshire in northern England. Uh, really, really gorgeous shots there. Lady Rhea is shown right away to be an accomplished hunter and a horsewoman, kind of an all-around no-nonsense person. But I've always heard it's unwise to hunt alone. And so I wasn't really surprised when she told her cousin Gerald that she was going to go out alone. I think if you've read Fire and Blood, you might have seen this one coming. Fire and Blood describes Lady Rhea's death as a tragic mishap and places Prince Damon in the Stepstones when it occurred. House of the Dragon leans into sort of a slight suspicion that a lot of readers, including Ryan Condell, felt over this description of this highly convenient death. It says, Lady Rhea Royce uh, fell from her horse whilst hawking and cracked her skull upon a stone. She lingered for nine days before finally feeling well enough to leave her bed, only to collapse and die within an hour of rising. And so... Lady Rhea has this reunion with her husband, which happens in a remote pass with no one around, although it is actually in sight of her home at Runestone. It's obvious they haven't seen each other in a long time, and she reveals one interesting detail, that their marriage has never been consummated. Uh, she also taunts him with her knowledge of a lot of the things he's said and done in King's Landing, including his famous comment about the sheep and women of the Vale. Uh, Damon is utterly silent for this scene, which is the second time we've seen Matt Smith absolutely nail a scene that has uh, no dialogue on his part. He does approach her on foot, and I gotta say, I kind of expected that Caraxes was going to have some sort of role in startling her horse. So uh, that isn't what happened. It's actually not entirely clear 
what caused it uh, due to this sort of filming technique that Claire Kilner uses to great effect throughout the entire episode, really. Uh, Ray is thrown from her horse and is she's lying helpless on the ground. Ryan Condell implied in the Inside the Episode featurette that Damon took advantage of circumstances and opportunistically finished her off while she was lying there and incidentally still hurling insults at him. Damon approaches her. He appears to do something to ascertain that she's fully paralyzed, kind of steps on her hand and turns to walk away. But she taunts him about failing to finish, which uh, paired with her uh, comment about the consummation or lack thereof of their marriage appears to imply that maybe the sexual issue we've seen Damon confronted with twice so far wasn't or weren't just solitary occurrences. Uh, wonder if it's potentially part of a bigger picture for this troubled prince. Uh, maybe we'll see more of that or hear more about that later. We, we don't actually see her death, but it is very clear from the next time that she's mentioned uh, at High Tide by Rhaenys and Coralise Valerian that Damon did, in fact, finish this time. Oh, dear. Yeah, I, I thought that Rachel Redford did really well in this very brief role. I got an immediate impression of her strong character and sense of independence. We can see why Damon would have such a problem with her. It's not that she's thoroughly annoying as his unreliable version of events goes. It's more that she's not afraid to speak her mind and give as good as she gets. I like that as director... Claire Kilner pointed out we can't be certain if Damon had come to the Vale with the express intention of killing his wife. Whatever the case, we see how brutal and cold-blooded Damon can be when he shows no emo emotion, first leaving his wife paralyzed on the ground and finally murdering her off screen. On a meta level, we should be wondering what the loss of his wife means for Damon practically now he's freed himself from the constraints of an unhappy marriage with one savage blow. And remembering that the pair had no children, his freedom is essentially complete. More on how he handles that later. But now let's turn our eyes to the Red Keep. Yeah, following his dismissal from the small council last episode, we next catch up with Sir Otto Hightower on his way out of King's Landing. It's raining. It's very dramatic. His own pride, and perhaps also the pride of his elder brother, Lord Hightower, demands that he return to Old Town, but this means leaving Alicent alone in the capital. The irony of Otto first putting Rhaenyra forth as the best option for heir, now only to fear her as his family's biggest threat, is not really lost on anyone here. You know, and Otto doesn't mince words with Alicent either. He knows that his daughter has defended Rhaenyra in the past and has not followed his counsel to protect Aegon or promote his claim in the past. So now that Otto's forced to exit, we see him make one more impassioned attempt to persuade Alicent of the danger that he feels certain that she is in. Alicent blames his relentless pursuit for all of this, but he pushes back on that. And there's a bit of self-fulfilling prophecy feeling here in Otto's words. He says to her, listen to me, daughter, the king will die. It may not be for months or years, but he'll not live to be an old man. And if Rhaenyra succeeds him, war will follow. The realm will not accept her. And to succeed, she'll have to put your children to the sword. She'll have no choice. You know it. You're no fool, and yet you choose not to see it. 
The time is coming, Alicent. Either you prepare Aegon to rule or you cleave to Rhaenyra and pray for her mercy. Now, it feels a bit premature to assume all of the things he's saying here are fact. Uh, Much of it feels more like projection, as Otto is absolutely willing to take House Hightower to war to defend Alicent and Aegon. Let's not forget that he also wants Daemon far, far, far away from the throne and knows Daemon is sniffing around Rhaenyra. Lastly, he's also aware that some lords and small folk likely have trouble accepting a female ruler. We saw that in previous episodes. So he feels certain that war is coming, but he just hasn't realized that his words here prey to his daughter's anxieties in a way that actually push her towards making or taking the first shots. Yeah, great points on self-fulfilling prophecy because Otto's words certainly put Alison on a front footing and which mother in fear of her children wouldn't seek to protect them. Whether Otto's words about the danger to the children were genuinely felt or whether he was just trying to kick-start his daughter into gear and grab the Iron Throne for her son is an interesting question, I think. In Fire and Blood, coming from unreliable historian narrators, I think there's a stronger sense that Otto was focused on winning the Game of Thrones for the prestige of his house. And here seeing a human portrayal, I think it's more open to interpretation as well as the possibility it's a little from column A and a little from column B. And speaking of the books, I just wanted to give you a quick reading of Otto's departure from the text to compare how it was set to history. Loudest amongst Alicent's supporters was her father, Sir Otto Hightower, Hand of the King. Pushed too far on the matter, in 109 AC, Viserys stripped Sir Otto of his chain of office and named in his place the taciturn Lord of Harrenhal, Lionel Strong. This hand will not hector me, his grace proclaimed. Even after Sir Otto had returned to Old Town, a Queen's party still existed at court, a group of powerful lords friendly to Queen Alicent and supported of the rights of her sons. Against them was pitted the party of the princess. King Viserys loved both his wife and daughter and hated conflict and contention. So, back in the show, whether Otto was right to terrify his daughter and whether this will become a self-fulfilling prophecy is an interesting discussion that will become more complex as the story goes on. But for now, we can say that while House Hightower is in danger of losing some of its grip on power, there are other houses going in the opposite direction. Yeah, that's right. Let's talk about the rise of House Strong. As uh, House Hightower star seems to be falling, with Alicent looking fully isolated after her father's departure, that of House Strong is on the rise. Lord Lionel has been consistently throughout the season, we've noted it, uh, it's, it's no mystery, he's been the honest counselor, and probably surprising no one has been named as Viserys' new hand. While his two sons have clearly also been positioned to have roles at court, his heir Harwin, uh, known as Breakbones, has a post in the City Watch. According to Fire and Blood, he's captain of the City Watch, and we'll be seeing more of him in this episode, of course. While uh, the younger son, Larys the Clubfoot, again, according to the text, joined the king's confessors, which sounds innocent enough, but... We want to point out that uh, the Lord Confessor is a post that reports directly to the King's Justice or the Headsman and is essentially a fancy name for torturer. The Confessors, 
who work under the Lord Confessor basically have charge of getting information from people by whatever means necessary. And this is a particular talent uh, that is something we should keep an eye out for with uh, Laris the Clubfoot. Yeah, and let's talk about Laris in this episode. In the Godswood of, of the Red Keep, we do get a closer look at him. He's a curious character. Whereas his father, Lionel, seems seems like a genuine servant of the realm, one of the few characters in a position of power who seems to act without self-interest or ulterior motives, maybe. Laris immediately seems like he's got some hidden agenda up his sleeve. It's quite obvious. Previously, we saw him at the hunt, and although his club foot prevented him from riding, he seemed perfectly happy to blend in with the gossiping ladies of the court. We could sense then that Laris is a man who understands the value of information. Here, he approaches Alison when she's alone and immediately calls her an outsider among the natives while pretending he's referring to a plant. Given Otto's departure, Alison must now feel terribly alone, confined within a Targaryen castle, and Laris is so sharp he picks up on that immediately. He draws attention to this rare foreign flower called the Malvales, I think it was. He notes that against all odds, it's thriving in its unfamiliar environment. The writers then later extend the Alison plant metaphor at the feast when her uncle Hobart congratulates her on her entrance, saying he was afraid she might wither under the sun of King's Landing. So plenty of figurative language in this episode. But here, the sharp use of this figurative language outlines Laris's high intelligence, I think, and we understand that he's attempting to ingratiate himself. He begins to talk politics, and when Alison questions his interest, Laris says that while he's not much having much influence on proceedings, he compensates by being a keen observer. He's sharp as a whip, and when he steers the conversation topic towards that about the moon tea, we know that he's being manipulative. The question is, to what end? By the time the conversation's done, Laris has stirred up a lot of trouble in a very short amount of time. He's helped set Alison against Rhaenyra, and we can tell that he did it on purpose. Laris is clearly an information-is-power character, much like Varys and Littlefinger. And like Laris, it was often difficult to detect their motives. If we look at his part in setting Alison against Rhaenyra here, in hindsight, he's already left a large imprint on this story, a feat that even Varys and Littlefinger would have to admire, I think. And I want to give some respect to the actor Matthew Needham, who I think has captured this whole mysterious Laris strong vibe so well in only a couple of scenes. Yes, he certainly has. Uh, all right, so let's leave Laris there for the moment and head on over to Driftmark. I've been waiting to see this for a while. We first see this brief, <laughs> apparently very uncomfortable for Viserys' journey across Blackwater Bay by ship, uh, but at the end of which Viserys and Rhaenyra arrive at high tide with the new hand, Lionel Strong, to propose the betrothal that Viserys decided upon in the last episode. Their arrival is the first time that we see the exterior setting being used. 
there it is, St. Michael's Mount in Cornwall, which is very likely to be the real world inspiration for high tide. It's a tidal island connected to the mainland by a causeway that's only accessible at low tide. During high tide, uh, the island and castle are completely inaccessible by foot, but fortunately, Viserys and company arrive at low tide, or else his reception might have been even more lackluster than it was. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely. It's so wonderful to see Driftmark here and the new castle, High Tide. Lord Corlys became very wealthy before the onset of the series, and I think we mentioned in the preview episode that he built a new seat for himself when he ascended to the Driftwood throne, which we now finally get to see on screen here in a lot more detail. Lord Corlys imagines himself a very important man and one who has been slighted by the king in the past. As an aside, just seeing Rhaenys kind of hale and healthy, casually leaning against the, a throne while Viserys stands there so ill and frail after his sea voyage gives the viewer a glimpse, a glimpse of like what could have been uh, had the realm been, you know, more progressive with gender politics earlier on. They did a really wonderful job in keeping with the high tide described in text as well. The stone used in this castle was the same light stone used to construct the Eyrie, the seat of House Aaron and the Vale. I did a side-by-side -side image comparison on Twitter, and the set of the Eyrie does look really similar in terms of construction materials, and I loved that the showrunners gave their set design such great care here. Being a much newer castle than the Erie High Tides architecture does look distinct with a gothic vibe and plenty of kind of like open space and light to admire the Driftwood throne and other treasures. The throne room is the main area that we get to see inside called the Hall of Nine in homage to the nine great sea voyages that Corliss made before ascending the Driftwood throne. The Lord of the Tide has many awesome artifacts from these voyages on display in keeping with the theme. Uh, History of Westeros did a really wonderful job in their stream yesterday breaking some of that down. There's also stone carvings, much like Viserys's Valyria model city. And I couldn't help but wonder if this is something that Corlys or Rhaenys had commissioned. Uh, you know, is it possible that this was more of a Targaryen tradition meant to symbolize the passing down of ancient Valyrian knowledge? Or did the men of the age simply really enjoy wargaming and miniatures? Considering that those games are born out of a need to kind of train and prepare for wars during peacetime, really either one of those things would made, make sense. And it likely isn't quite the, as nerdy of a hobby <laughs> as it is today. True, true. I definitely noticed uh, this motif during the Valerian War Council on the Stepstones. They had some of those really cool uh, figures representing the various armies. So uh, I'm just going to go with Westerosi Lords, love miniatures. And that's for whatever reason. And games. So we first see the royal party arrive in this virtually deserted courtyard outside of High Tide with only Lenor and Jeffrey Lonmouth present. And when the Hand asks sharply about their reception, Lady Lena appears, uh, which this is certainly a pointed and carefully planned uh, reception, given her history with the king. Uh, she's, she's there to make him feel uncomfortable. I think that's pretty clear. Her task is to actually bring the king and his party to her father in the Hall of Nine, where we find Corlys, sitting on the Driftwood throne, awaiting his visitor. Uh, there is a very tense moment at this role reversal, which is, feels quite intentional. But after a moment, Corlys does descend from his seat and take a knee before his king. Uh, Viserys, who is always conflict-averse, chooses to just ignore the slight and states his business. 
Uh, but not before his cousin Rainey breezes in, dressed very casually, with probably her riding garb. Uh, another indication that House Valerian doesn't really quite see itself as subservient to their Targaryen cousins. She does show obvious concern uh, regarding her cousin's visibly poor health. Nonetheless, Viserys refuses a chair, while uh, usually uh, negotiations of this sort would typically be performed around a, a meeting table or maybe even by proxies, we're instead given a scene where Viserys and thus everyone else uh, has to just kind of stand around awkwardly while the two fathers haggle over the details. Uh, Corliss wants to know about the succession and the naming of any potential children. Viserys reaffirms that Rhaenyra is his heir, and this is interesting, that her eldest child, regardless of their gender, will succeed her. That's a slight embroidery from Fire and Blood, where this issue isn't really raised, uh, and we don't get to see King Viserys really taking a strong stand on this press, you know, the fact that he's setting precedent. But it does seem in keeping with Viserys's intentions in the show so far. And it's really an opportunity for the showrunners to show him being sensitive to a very hot button issue that has great meaning for his daughter. Uh, she's she's brought it up to him directly. It, it's been portrayed in every single episode, uh, as well as to his fut- his favorite cousin, who's now his daughter's future mother-in-law. But while the king affirms that Rhaenyra's children will be born Valerians, he does draw the line at that one oldest child. The king or queen who succeeds Rhaenyra will be a Targaryen and will preside over a new age of dragons. And we'll have more on that particular theme later. So with all these uh, details sorted out, Viserys just departs basically to go take a nap before he gets back in his ship to return to King's Landing. This was clearly not a social call. He needs to get back to his comfort zone as quickly as possible, leaving Rhaenys and Corlys to discuss Laenor and Rhaenyra. Rhaenys shows very clear acceptance of her son's sexuality, while his father displays a very strong we-can-fix-him vibe. But uh, they do make the point that he and Rhaenyra have known each other all their lives, and they do they have this degree of comfort with each other, uh, which we will see in their first on-screen scene together. But Rhaenys expresses a high degree of skepticism and concern, not for the first time. She expresses what she feels will happen if Rhaenyra succeeds. The knives will come out. And she's very concerned now for her son and for her as-yet-unborn grandchildren. She states frankly, that they're putting them in danger. So there's a strong parallel here with Otto's concern that he expressed to Alicent in that in that scene, with a major difference being that Rhaenys doesn't try to influence events to alter the outcome. Her warning is simply stated as a fact for which House Valerian must be prepared. Her husband's desire to get justice for her, for the wrongs done to her previously by her grandfather and by the Great Council, is an extremely touching scene. Um, like every time we see this couple on screen together, we get a new sense of how dynamic their marriage is and really how well they work together. Yeah, absolutely. You know, while the adults speak in the Hall of Nine, their heirs who they've just betrothed to each other stroll the beach. Really, really beautiful framing of this scene here. I love it. 
Both are very aware of the situation and seem to be well-versed in their duty at this point. It's actually great to see Rhaenyra so open to the idea of marrying Lenor. A, a huge reversal from the attitude she displayed toward Jason Lannister or the crowd of suitors that we saw her with at Storm's End. Clearly, Damon's influence has helped her come around to the idea of marriage as we see her basically pitch the same thing to Lenor that Damon described to her in Flea Bottom. Do our duty, but be free to pursue our own interests. It's really incredible to see these young heirs kind of carving out their own dynamic for a marriage that they're essentially being forced into. When you reminded me, and I also saw Egg mention this in the chat, of that awful Melos quote of not preferring the taste of fish, but eating it when served. I'm glad we didn't have to hear that from our least favorite maester, but uh, instead nodded to it with that goose and duck metaphor here. I think I prefer it from Rhaenyra the, rather than Melos. <laughs> All I can say is that I really love that moment. I'm glad that for Lenor he's got an ally, uh, not only in Rhaenyra, but in his mother Rhaenys as well, uh, especially since, as we said before, his dad seems pretty either in denial or just, uh, you know, willing to overlook his preferences. Well, I certainly wish my fantasy worlds could be more progressive. I understand the precedent in Westeros, and overall it felt... It really, you know, it felt touching to see the foundation that Rhaenyra and Laenor set for their impending marriage. Great points. And then we have a scene with Laenor and Joffrey. So those two, we first saw them in combat practice a bit earlier, but we then see them in the dunes along the coast, tucked away in a quiet spot where no one else can see them. The setting is certainly romantic and intimate, Following up on Rhaenyra's proposition of an open relationship or something in that ballpark, the lovers discuss the impact of such an agreement on their relationship. In spite of what Corliss said about Lenor one day growing out of his sexuality, we know that's not going to happen. And so it must have come as a welcome surprise to this couple that Rhaenyra is not only fully aware of Lenor's preferences, but wants him to have a private life of his own. When Joffrey says that this result is the best they could have hoped for, it's perhaps not an understatement. Lenor gets to continue his relationship, and even if he has to be discreet, he can still be himself, and he's got an outlet for that. At the same time, he'll be a king consort to a queen who at least understands his wants and needs. So, yeah, this is a great deal for... Such a great deal for those two that Joffrey is comfortable enough with this marriage to begin making casual japes. At first he wonders if he was the duck or the goose in the previous conversation, which I, I thought that was quite funny. And then he offers to be Lenor's sworn shield, which is an interesting way of saying paramour, given the irony that in parallel, Kristen Cole is already blurring the line between sworn shield and lover. It's a really short scene, but I think it's very important that it demonstrates how close these lovers are, which then heightens the shock of the later events. Sadly, Joffrey's curiosity gets the better of him. He wonders who Rhaenyra's paramour is, and he's pulling on a thread that we know doesn't end well. And there's also some dramatic irony here, given that the viewer knows exactly who Rhaenyra's lover is, even if those two don't. And Joffrey's words actually overlap with a scene between Rhaenyra and Kristen. Yeah, Sir Kristen 
and Rhaenyra have a moment alone again on the sail back to King's Landing. Rhaenyra feels very triumphant here, having come to an understanding with Laenor about their marriage, essentially making it open. She plans to operate within the confines of her role as a royal princess, but still free to pursue her own sexual desires. Contrast that to Kristen, who has spun himself up, thinking that he could offer her an entirely new path, a path that frees her from the role he somewhat understandably thinks she doesn't want, as it's been the object of her discontent for years that they've known each other. She's complained about it to him directly. However, I don't think he's fully thought this through. Kristen has already broken his vows, but he thinks that if he frees Rhaenyra to leave and marry him, his disgrace will be forgiven and he can start a new life as a more honorable man. Uh, They fundamentally misunderstood each other's positions here, and it comes to a head on the ship. Rhaenyra, who's just coming to understand the importance of her role as future queen, is still missing a huge piece of the equation in her dynamic with Sir Criston. The mismatch in power and position between them muddies the water of consent between them. Regardless of Sir Criston's choice to be intimate with her or not, there would be consequences for him. Now, Rhaenyra's choice to reject his offer but continue to have him as a paramour brings those consequences and the inequality between them into sharp relief. Sir Kristen reacts extremely angrily to her offer, not wishing to further dishonor himself or his vows uh, for anything less than what he thinks is a legitimate marriage to her. The two part pretty angrily here, Cole feeling used and abandoned, and Rhaenyra absolutely flabbergasted that he would want her to abdicate the throne. It's pretty well done having been such a gray portion in the books because we can empathize with both of them a little bit here. Uh, Maybe not Kristen's reaction, but at least him leading into this conversation. He obviously feels as though his agency had been removed and he's sullied his white cloak. Uh, He has very few paths forward in his mind. Either Rhaenyra can lower herself in doing so, helping him to rise from the stain of Oathbreaker, or he must pay the price for his actions, actions that, again, had some iffy dynamic er, power dynamics at play. Yet the audience can also understand Rhaenyra's actions or reaction completely. In what world would she be able to just run off with him and get married? What about Cyrax? You know, how many silver-haired women riding dragons uh, has the world seen before? I have to say there's some like Sarah and other Targaryen vibes here <laughs> with that, but she's not exactly conspicuous as far as runaways go. Kristen clearly didn't put any thought into his proposal and it was very, very focused on, you know, what it would do for him, not anything about what it offers her. You know, as Rhaenyra says here, the Iron Throne looms larger than me, larger than anyone in my family. Yeah, that moment right there struck me as incredibly important. Rhaenyra had really just made herself incredibly vulnerable to Kristen because she revealed her arrangement with Laenor and expecting him to go along with it. And I felt there that she was really on the brink, and I've watched it several times, and I still felt that way every time. She's on the brink of telling him about the prophecy. She's using that exact language that her father used in a previous episode, and she's added this kind of half-finished line about Aegon the Conqueror uniting Westeros before Kristen storms off. So in showing the the lengths that Rhaenyra was prepared to go to, to be honest and open with her lover... I think the writers of this scene are really leaning into Septon Eustace's version that the fallout between the pair originated with Kristen's extremely inappropriate and unrealistic dream that Rhaenyra abandoned her family, her duty, her honor. Not that she's a Tully, but there you have it. That's what he's asking of her. And 
probably her dragon in order to assuage his own bruised honor. I mean, pfft. yeah, um, better off. <laughs> well, <laughs> better off without him. Uh, so then what happens next? Mere moments after they arrive back at the Red Keep, Kristen is summoned by the queen. She is evidently taking Laris's information to heart and intends to try and pump Kristen for more information. So there is an interesting dynamic in this. She's pretty awkward in this. It's really her first foray into being a player. She isn't quite sure of herself and she doesn't quite ask the right questions with nearly comical results. I mean, if this didn't have such a serious impact, it, it is hilarious. Uh, Kristen, fresh off of his emotional conversation with Rhaenyra, which he clearly took as a personal rejection, actually just confesses to a crime Alicent had no idea she was asking about. Uh, if this guy was just a little bit more experienced with the game himself, he would have never, should have never confessed to anything because uh, his own life is at stake here. And really only the fact that Alicent, as he sees it as a Clement queen, it, is what saves him. Actually, in reality, she's just so shocked. She doesn't know what to do with this piece of information. So following her conversation with her father, she has gained a couple of really key pieces of useful information from Laris and now Kristen Cole. And we can see her building up her network of supporters and her approach to this game that it's clear is being played. Uh, in contrast to the last episode, in this one, she's filmed almost entirely independently, even to the point where Viserys inquires after her and he's told she's otherwise occupied, a clear sign that she's seizing agency, whereas previously she was portrayed as very isolated and lacking in agency. Uh, we're going to see that that theme of her taking control of things uh, only growing in this episode. But first, let's talk about Viserys' illness. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Yeah, we did talk about Viserys' weakening condition last week. And that he's becoming increasingly frail. And this week, he seemed worse. And of course, it's an ominous sign telling us that the king is one day going to die and that there's going to be some serious trouble when that happens. Paddy Considine has revealed this week that his character is suffering from a condition similar to leprosy. 
with his weak, pale appearance and low levels of strength, Viserys is presenting as an ailing old man, but as Considine pointed out, he really is not that old. Now the king's continued dis disintegration serves as a blunt metaphor for his rule. After a long period of peace and health, the kingdom is in danger of falling apart piece by piece. Today his health was brought into sharp focus when he struggled to make his way around high tide. He was visibly panting and sweating and it hurt just to watch. Notice that everyone is so around him is so self-interested that they don't seem to be making his life much easier, such as when the sea snake didn't come out to meet him. Viserys collapses for the first time, coming back to the Red Keep following the trip away, and is treated in his chambers by Grandmaster Melos and Maester Orwell. I've seen conversations in the fandom about whether Melos is actively and purposefully causing harm to the king, maybe poisoning him or, or something in some sort of hidden clandestine plot. But I think he's just an incompetent maester, to be honest. We'll, we'll see, but th th that would be my call. In, in the flickering light of his chambers, we get a glimpse of Viserys' arm. And yeah, that's something that he's probably been hiding because there's decay all up his fore forearm. It does look quite gross. His deterioration is like a ticking time bomb for the plot. It's a catalyst for characters to scheme and position themselves before the inevitable collapse. And this fuse is well lit. So the question is not, is he going to die? The question is, when is he going to die? And what will happen thereafter? Yeah, that's correct. The king's mortality is increasingly obvious. Uh, Otto mentions it in the in his first or his only scene in this episode, and it really continues to color uh, all of Viserys' efforts to ensure that Rhaenyra is married off to someone who's going to provide support for her when she ascends the throne. He talks about his legacy with Lionel in this scene, uh, and the main question on his mind seems to be how he'll be remembered. Uh, the histories will say he was a good king. And Lionel talks about how he's preserved to Harris's legacy, and it's quite true that Viserys did inherit a realm where peace and prosperity were the norm, but peace and prosperity can feel very dull, and Viserys seems to regret that he was never tested and that there won't be songs written about him. Although Lionel quite honestly points out that many who are tested end up regretting it. Uh, and while a subject is left there for that scene, we could look at Viserys' words elsewhere in this episode for hints at what he hopes his legacy will be. Uh, yes, continued peace and prosperity, a progressive view on inheritance, which essentially chucks the Andal model and the decisions of the Great Council out the window uh, in favor of something that is perhaps uniquely Targaryen. And, per and also... Speaking of uniquely Targaryen, probably most importantly, he talks about this new age of dragons. He mentions it on Driftmark and later in his speech at the welcoming feast. Uh, while Viserys is certainly conflict-averse, as we've noted, he's no fool, and he surely knows that this new age of dragons will be the key if his line is to thrive and for his daughter to succeed as he hopes. Uh, unbeknownst to anyone else in Wester Westeros, except Rhaenyra, Viserys has his eyes on Aegon's prophecy and the destiny that it laid upon the Targaryen dynasty. 
So reabsorbing the dragon riders from House Valerian, or at least one of them, into the main branch should ensure that all these potent symbols of power are on hand to ensure that that destiny can be fulfilled. Unfortunately, in spite of his father-in-law's obvious ambition for Allison's children and the fact that both Otto and Rhaenys seem to see the future pretty clearly, Viserys doesn't seem to have envisioned a future where his children will fight each other or where the realm fails to just accept his decisions. So such are the flaws of a natural optimist whose existence has been fairly privileged and mostly removed from the day-to-day realities of life in Westeros. So let us move on now to the central event of the episode. The welcoming feast in the throne room of the Red Keep was ostensibly the kickoff event of a week of feasts and tournaments, which would culminate in a royal wedding. What we got instead was all of that crammed into one evening. And Yoke Boy, why don't you get us started on all on that? Yeah, we all know what weddings mean in Westeros. So, yeah, in three of the previous four episodes, there have been settings or events that have provided ideal opportunities for character drama and plot advancement. In the first, we had the tourney to celebrate the birth of Balon. In the second, we had the royal hunt for Aegon's name day. And in the fourth, we had the urban adventure through the streets of King's Landing. All of this added to the world building and sense of verisimilitude. And in this episode, the focus was a wedding. The feast celebrations to mark the union of Rhaenyra and Laenor took the final 20 minutes of the episode. So it was a sizable chunk, especially considered that what came before it was essentially set up for the this sequence. So... Like the tourney and the hunt, the wedding brought the lords and ladies together and there were so many intertwining conversations all sort of happening under one roof at the same time. The levels of of drama were sky high. It was really a great sequence. The setting was grand and the long shots of the throne room turned banquet hall were stunning. They looked like some sort of classical art. The attention to detail throughout was absolutely top-notch, I thought, and everything came together to create a really rich and wonderful atmosphere that was both palpable and convincing. A lot of work went into this long sequence, and I I really think that it showed. The the mise-en-scene really looked like it had a lot of been time had been spent arranging it, and there was the costuming, lavish, and of course, one dress style really stood out, and we'll get to that in a moment. So with the food porn, music, and arm flapping, dragon dancing, the hall really came to life, Lady Gwyn. Yes, uh, it sure did. Uh, I loved this part, the dance of the dragons, a lovely and subtle nod to the source material. I also loved how the guest list is a real stew of potential awkwardness. Uh, In my notes watching the episode, I just wrote awkward soup. Uh, We've got characters who've been introduced in earlier episodes from Jason Lannister continuing to be extremely cringy and self-important and an entire cadre of blonde lions following along behind him. Uh, Then you have Alicent's uncle, Lord Hobart Hightower, 
there with his wife, Liness, and a bunch of other Hightower-clad people. Not to mention Sir Gerald Royce with his bronze-themed clothing, as well as a pair of fine bronze balls on display, as we'll see. Uh, but before we get too far in describing the tumultuous events as they played out, why don't we rewind a little and go through the points of drama as they unfold from start to finish? As visitors packed in to sit along these two long tables on either side of the aisle, on the dais was the royal table with the Targaryens and the Valerians. Yet there were two key characters who arrived slightly late to the party. Yeah, yes, Damon and Alison. And Damon came in first, but I'm going to skip to Alison for the, for the sake of the flow that we've got here. As King Viserys made a speech about the strong bonds between House Targaryen and House Valerian, note there's no mention of high towers, remembering the theme of Alicent not quite fitting in with her surroundings. He's interrupted by none other than the Queen herself. She arrives fashionably late, and this was obviously a passive-aggressive power move from her. After realising... Rhaenyra and her father had told her lies of omission, and with the potential threat to her children having been spelled out to her still in her mind, the ball was in Alison's court how she was going to respond. So this is what she did. She decided to steal the limelight at Rhaenyra's wedding. Now, I've heard horror stories in the real world about women wearing their best wedding dress that they can find for their big day only for a guest to show up in similar garb and create some awkwardness. Here, Alison does the same thing, only she wears green instead to contrast and symbolize a subtle, deeper meaning. But this subtlety was not lost on Lara Strong, who earlier in their episode told us how observant he is. And yes, it's true. He whispers to his brother Harwin that the High Towers use a green flame to call their banners to war in their beacon. And there's a similar line in Fire and Blood. I think it's in the Sons of the Dragon section. This moment stands in contrast with episode one, when Alison was ordered to wear her mother's dress uh, to keep Viserys company by her own scheming father. Here, things have changed. She has the agency and power to wear what she wants, and she does exactly that. Alison is changing, and to bring back the plant metaphor used earlier by the writers, maybe it's her time to bloom. Like I said, this is pivotal. She's stepping up in the Game of Thrones. When she coldly delivers her courtesies to Rhaenyra and kisses her husband, you could cut the atmosphere with a knife. The hall goes silent and she's successfully made the moment about her, which was obviously her intention. Alison is taking control of her destiny. Of course, this, like I said, this does come after Damon's late swaggering arrival, which we'll be talking about momentarily. But for now, consider how much gall it took to upstage even the rogue prince. Yeah, that's right. I am not sure what Daemon Targaryen would have to do to really get banished from King's Landing, but so far he doesn't seem to have done it. Uh, we last saw him, well, other than it, other than earlier in this episode, he was last seen in the throne room of King's Landing, lying on the ground, getting the shit kicked out of him by his brother. 
Uh, but here he is. He's the bad penny that just keeps turning up. And Viserys, metaphorically and even quite literally in this case, gives him a seat at the table. It's obvious that House Targaryen has these family ties that just mean everything. You know, they're somewhat above the rest of mortal men. So I think that must really uh, make it uh, make family mean a lot more, perhaps, than it does even to normal people. Uh, this is a point I think is being well made here in the lead up to the fracturing of the family. In fact, in, in Fire and Blood, uh, I want to say that Damon is absent for the royal wedding, but he does visit Driftmark following his wife's death. And as I said earlier, uh, he was said to be on the stepstones for that event, and he only went to the Vale following Lady Rhea's death there to present his case as her heir to Lady Jane Arryn of the, at the Erie, in that he failed. It says in Fire and Blood, not only was his claim dismissed, but Lady Jane warned him that his presence in the Vale was unwelcome. In this scene, Damon is confronted by Rhea's cousin, Sir Gerald Royce, he of the giant bronze balls, who accuses him right there in front of the king in the hand of murdering his wife. Uh, Damon is <laughs> supremely unconcerned. In fact, given the language that's been used around the inhabitants of the Vale, I couldn't help but think of Tywin's line about the lion not concerning itself with the opinion of sheep, uh, substitute dragon, of course. He actually mentions his intention to go present his claim to Lady Jane, but I expect that's just a nod to fire and blood. And we're not going to see that given the time jump. Lady Rhea's inheritance is noted to go to her nephew, and I'm pretty sure that here they're probably substituting Sir Gerald for that nephew, similar to them simplifying Sir Vaiman Valerian's relationship with Corlys by just making him a younger brother. When Damon visited Driftmark in Fire and Blood, he struck up a relationship with Lady Lena Valerian, who Mushroom states was almost as pretty as her brother, a line that's lifted right out of that text and put into Damon's mouth uh, in a scene where Damon and Lena joined the dancing together at the welcoming feast. In Fire and Blood, Lena was betrothed to a son of the uh, now former Sea Lord of Bravos, and Damon actually intentionally baits him into a duel, a plot point that, again, will probably be bypassed since this betrothal has already been mentioned, but only as something under consideration. It's presumably been abandoned. So they have this scene together in this episode full of flirting and snappy dialogue, which definitely seems to prefigure more to come from uh, this relationship between this pair, although it nonetheless doesn't hamper the usual smoldering, smoldering High Valyrian dialogue between Damon and Rhaenyra on the dance floor, which we suddenly see Viserys laser-focused upon. This is another place that Claire Kilner uses that sort of obscured uh, vision uh, filming technique where, you know, Viserys can't quite see what's going on. And he's incredibly distracted and tense about it. Uh, the tension between Damon and Rhaenyra is absolutely palpable. And the use of their private love language uh, is always preceded by a scene that takes center stage. So you've got Viserys's attention laser focused on his daughter and his brother to the point, like I said, of utter distraction of what's going on right around him. Paired with the way in which the scene is being filmed, those quick shots, partially obscured, we're growing the tension even more. And then 
it appears to come to a climax where Damon leans in to kiss Rhaenyra, but that's actually a moment of transition because rather than ending the tension, it's actually the moment when all hell breaks loose, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's really the perfect way to put it. All hell does break loose, and our first glimpse of that happens from the perspective of the head table. You know, we've seen hints at rising tension here and there, you know, between, as you said, Gerald Royce and Damon, Joffrey Lawnmouth and Sir Kristen. And at the very moment that things go sideways, Prince Damon is having a very provocative conversation with his niece that looks to be leading towards a kiss. The tension has been ratcheted up throughout uh, with this with this kind of frantic, slightly discordant music that they're using. And then all of the careful choreography that we've seen throughout the entire event collapses into panic and screams. You know, those at that high table who had really been orchestrating the wedding so carefully are completely helpless in this moment. Viserys paces impotently asking, where's Rhaenyra? But in reality, can't do anything for her directly. No one can, apparently, save for Lord Strong, who gives the nod to his son Harwin, who then charges in to save the princess. I really have to wonder what the other Kingsguard were doing in this moment, or Damon, uh, who disappears entirely. But I love that it was Sir Harwin who uh, got to her and got her to safety. Speaking of Damon, as I said, he disappears pretty quickly there, and I have to wonder why. You know, obviously the brawl ultimately devolved into Cole versus Lawnmouth, but I have to wonder if that was Cole's initial target, or had he seen Damon and Rhaenyra embracing and became enraged by that? The ambiguity leaves the audience feeling much like a fire and blood reader, only really able to infer what happened based on a very limited perspective. The show has used this type of framing, uh, as as Gwyn's mentioned a few times this episode, to great effect before, with including with Damon's alleged air for a day comments that we don't actually see, or with Rhea Royce's fall. The opaqueness and key moments of the storytelling is certainly an interesting device, even if it does lead to the occasional brawl on Twitter. It wouldn't be a Game of Thrones wedding without a ton of drama and a lot of people playing the game, so to speak. You know, one thing I've noticed a lot this episode is that we... You know, we see the conscious players such as Damon, Laris Strong, the High Towers, the Valerians kind of lining up, but we see also a lot of unconscious players or pawns. You know, we've definitely been, been covering the players already in great detail, but this episode also highlights several people who, you know, maybe they're just pawns, maybe they are players who need to wake the hell up before their game is ended prematurely. Uh, thinking back to that iconic line from the initial series, when you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die, we can't help but feel that poor Sir Joffrey clearly did not understand that uh, or the danger that he was in. We can only hope that this incident has helped Rhaenyra see what a dangerous game she's at the center of and how her actions with Sir Criston or her choice to mislead Alicent have a cascading impact on herself, her allies, and her future heirs. Yeah, absolutely. I think... I think wake up call is is a good way to put it. Um, I, I assume that something like having your husband's lover be beaten to death in what ends up being your wedding day uh, would be a significant wake up call. R.I.P. to Joffrey Lonmouth. That was really an awful scene and really moving. Um, you know, Lenor's grief at the end there was really really moving. Uh, I think I think they he played it very well. So let's um, move on to the wedding as it happens. As I mentioned earlier, 
At the beginning of the feast, Viserys had promised a high time of seven days of fun and festivities, but Kristen Cole's murder of Joffrey Lameth was so shocking that the king called for an almost immediate shotgun wedding, which is how it was described by the showrunners, just to get this business of the marriage over and done with as soon as possible. As uh, the director described, this desperate situation was the fruition of all these power plays and parents manipulating their children throughout, you know, Viserys' whole reign, or at least what we've seen of it in the show. Ultimately, what was supposed to be a really grand celebration turns sour, and we're left with this sort of funeral-esque atmosphere when the grieving Lainor and an absolutely speechless Rhaenyra uh, end up tying the knot six days ahead of schedule. Weddings really never dull affair in Westeros, although I guess sometimes they, uh, maybe they're often tragic, <laughs> um, sadly. The takeaway is clear. There is an increasing level of violence under the surface of these characters, and seems like it might burst out at any given moment. Tensions at an all-time high, and now there are relationships that are suffering irreparable damage. Do we think House Valerian will forgive Kristen Cole in a hurry? I mean, he not only killed Lainor's lover, who was a member of the Valerian household, but he managed to land a bruising blow to Lainor's face. Uh, this is an offense that one would normally expect a king's guard to be dismissed for. Uh, we can only assume that there's going to be some sort of defense mounted behind the scenes or off screen. Uh, basically, we're seeing these factions forming and they're going to continue to form and to harden as Viserys' health deteriorates and we gear up or they gear up for the moment when he passes away. Rivalries are growing so fractured that it's kind of difficult to see how any of it can ever be reconciled. And the only thing holding this whole hot mess together is the ailing King Viserys. So what could possibly go wrong? Yes, quite. What could go wrong? So the wedding scene, as brief as it is, is intercut with a scene with Kristen Cole alone in the Godswood late at night. Given that Alison is present in both scenes, I think, we can't be sure which happened first on the timeline, but we would guess that the wedding came first and then later on in the night, Alison, Alison slipped off and sought out Kristen Cole herself and found him there in the Godswood. Kristen is, yeah, he's by a weirwood. This is a space for, you know, being honest with yourself and quiet reflection. Aside from breaking his vows with the princess and confessing his sins to the queen, which, as he said, potentially puts him in big, big trouble when we're talking about gelding or execution here, he's also just interrupted a royal wedding feast to kill the lover of the soon-to-be king consort. When he unsheathes his dagger and points it towards himself, we can understand why he's doing that. But sometimes the deepest pit can become a crucible for change. All Kristen needs here is an opportunity to make that change happen and someone to help him, really. And sure enough, in walks Queen Alison, offering mercy and support with a mere mention of his name. There's no other dialogue in the scene because none is needed. Alison, just by saying his name and acknowledge it, 
in him lets is letting him know that she she's there for him as an ally and she saves him from himself there Kristen is not the only major character work going on here I think Alison's appearance says so much about her she like I said earlier she is acting independently at the start of the episode she said goodbye to her father and it was time to grow up and fend for herself she was initially afraid and very unsure of herself then she took the ball by the horns and really announced herself as a player as we've said when she arrived at the feast and now we witness her first moves in the Game of Thrones. After keeping Kristen's secret, which I, I guess would be the first move, and then the dress, and now she realises she can forge an alliance with Kristen. What exactly this alliance might entail, we're going to have to wait and see, but I think we've seen Alison transform from a pawn to a player in this episode. Her character has definitely shifted from a passive position and a, someone to be manipulated into an active position if Alison has shifted from pawn to player remember and this is following up on something Emily said earlier that sometimes even those who appear to be players are actually being played themselves Littlefinger said it best to Sansa in his storm of swords he says every man's a piece to start and every maid as well even some who think they are players. So when we look back at today's episode and we call Alison a new player, she really needs to be careful that the likes of her father, her uncle and Laris Strong don't influence or manipulate her into making decisions that best suit them and not her. So she, she, if she's going to play the game, She's going to have to learn quickly and realise that there's a whole another layer ahead of her of experienced players. Okay, so that was our walkthrough of the episode, but we've still got some fun things to come. Why don't we do our weekly featurettes, some light-hearted moments here, guys. So we've got one called Dragon Watch and we've got one called Champ or Chump. Let's start with... Dragon Watch. Lady Gwyn, what was today's Dragon Watch? Well, this week on Dragon Watch, Yoke Boy, the hint that House Valerian might have more than one dragon is finally resolved. Lenor's Sea Smoke is back along with a new dragon, Maylis the Red Queen. There she is. Maylis has scarlet scales, pink wing membranes, and crest horns and claws of copper. She is not only one of the most striking of the Targaryen dragons, she's also said to be the swiftest, outpacing both Caraxes and Vagar, and along with those two, one of the oldest as well. Maylis is Princess Rhaenys Valerian, or Rhaenys, let's call her Rhaenys Targaryen Mount. Uh, she was previously ridden by Viserys and Daemon's mother, Alyssa Targaryen, and her speed is on display in that first, uh, her first appearance on screen there. The scene with those two dragons arriving in King's Landing is visually stunning and represents a raw show of power from House Valyrian, shortly to be confirmed as the second most powerful house in the realm. I think that is basically right from the mouth of the king. No other dragons are mentioned or hinted at in the episode, though Viserys does make 
much, as I said earlier, of the new Age of Dragons. He expects the union between Rhaenyra and Laenor to usher in, so heavy foreshadowing that there's a lot more dragons to come. Now, do those dragons, you know, are they Valyrian dra- or Valarian dragons until Rhaenyra ascends the throne and then they become Targaryen dragons? No, I'm kidding. Um, no, but I was super excited to see the Valyrian dragons represented. Always exciting to see Sea Smoke, Sir Laenor's gray-bearded mount. As Gwen already mentioned, we saw his mother's dragon for the first time. And as they swoop in, you can actually see Rhaenys and Laenor on dragonback. Fire and Blood has a lot of emphasis on how the dragon riders would fly together, sometimes even racing to or around King's Landing. So it was super cool to see this mother and son bonding moment. You know, my father just walked me down the aisle when I got married, but, you know, sure, dragons. (laughs) Uh, Very, very cool display of power here for House Valarian to start that the royal wedding events. You know, I personally had hoped to see one more dragon this episode, but I will save that for the spoiler section. Excellent. Okay. Champ or Chump? Champ, the character who won the day, who did something incredible or praiseworthy at at the very least. There's there's more Chumps than Champs in this story, really. So, uh, yeah, and the the Chump is the, the person who really let themselves down. So why don't we begin with Lady Gwyn? Who is your Champ of the Week? Yeah, these these two things are getting more difficult for for various reasons. <laughs> but my champ of the week is Harwin Strong for the best fireman carry ever seen in Westeros. <laughs> Hat tip to his dad for that little nod that started it all. Uh, I just love that scene. Emily mentioned it earlier when he just sort of waded in. Uh, to the brawl that was happening on the dance floor. Rainier has been knocked to the floor and everybody's fighting and it's chaos. And he is just like, break bones is going to break bones. He's throwing punches and he gets to her in, I don't know, like five seconds. He's, he's like, I've been waiting for this moment my whole life. (laughs) (laughs) Even my dad said I can do this. He looked so excited to be off the chain. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so on the subject of chumps, Emily, what do you think? There's there's some obvious ones and some not so obvious ones. What do you think? Who's your chump? Oh my god, you guys know I went back and forth so much. I like literally just changed my mind again about ten minutes ago. But um, I think ultimately I'm gonna settle on Sir Kristen Cole. Not necessarily for everything this episode, but very specifically for his scene with Allison. Where, you know, she's like, so I wanted to ask you. And he just gives up the whole game, just confesses right away. It's like, buddy, uh, (laughs) maybe clarify who she's asking you about first. But um, yeah, definitely a a chump move there. You know, steps in it a little bit. You know, murdering people at a wedding isn't great either. So definite chump. That was fun, guys. It's good to sort of light, lighten the tone because it's quite heavy analysis we do. So it's nice to have a laugh. So our final section is going to be spoilers, things in the episode that we wanted to talk about as book readers, but we couldn't because we don't want to spoil anyone that hasn't read the books. But now we're going to take the leash off. Lady Gwyn. Spoilers all books. Okay, Emily, what spoilery topic do you want to talk about today? Go for it. Sure. You know, I I like to 
to focus on a character in this section. So this week, I am excited to talk about a character that we've seen a few times now but haven't talked about too much, Lena Valarian. Uh, Lady Lena was portrayed by Nova Felice-Mose, I hope I said that right, in early episodes, and returned in episode five as a teen portrayed by uh, Savannah Stein. We'll actually later see her as an adult portrayed by Nana Blondell, Lena and her brother Lenor are the only characters in House of the Dragon this season who are actually portrayed by three separate actors. And going in and hearing that, I was a little bit worried that that might make us make it hard for us to connect with these characters. However, both actors portraying Lena so far have had a very strong presence and really captured the spirit of this adventurous young Valarian woman. In the books, Lena's the eldest child of Corliss and Rainey's, but they've swapped her and Lenor in the show, making him the elder child. It's a minor change that I think fits with some of the other ch- timeline changes, so I don't want to focus on it a whole lot here. I, I mentioned earlier we would talk a little bit about this. Lena was showing, she was shown earlier expressing interest in the whereabouts of Vagar, the realm's oldest living dragon, formerly the mount of Queen Visenya Targaryen and later ridden by Viserys and Daemon's father, Prince Balon, Vagar has been without a rider since Balon's death in 101 AC. It's said in Fire and Blood that Lena claimed the bronze she-dragon Vagar by 105 AC when she was just a tween. It's possible that Lena claimed Vagar off-screen after that conversation with Viserys about the dragon. You know, dragons are expensive to animate, after all. I mentioned earlier that I expected Lena to be shown with Vagar uh, with the other Valyrian dragon riders, but alas, no. Here's to hoping we get to see them together in future episodes, though. Can you imagine? I'm going to interrupt you just to say, could you imagine if all three of them had just come swooping in? I'm so sorry. Okay, I was I had I had Sanrixian over this this weekend and we were watching together and I think she was already like crushing bones in my hands just seeing Maylee's. So I think I would like need surgery probably if that had happened. So it's maybe a good thing. So um Lena, you know, not to not to skate past Vagar too much, but I'm hoping we'll get plenty of time to talk about her in future episodes. I do want to focus a little bit more on Lena in this episode where she is shown to be a pretty adept player of uh, on screen. You know, we talked a little bit about players, pawns, and folks who need to wake up. Uh, but, you know, she's, she seems to have it together. She's clearly been taught by some of the most cunning and wise of the Westerosi nobility, you know, her parents, bandying words with Lord Strong in this episode. Later, her dialogue at the wedding feast established Lena's connection to her future husband, Prince Damon. They share a dance, Lena proving she knows exactly how to flatter him. And as the show will jump forward in time, we may not get clarity on how these two get together. Fire and Blood leaves it similarly ambiguous, with some sources claiming that Damon sought after Lena to further his ambitions, while others believe it was indeed a love match. The scene we saw at the wedding certainly could be interpreted either way, so it'll be interesting to see Lena and Damon together in the future. I definitely agree. Seeing as how Fire and Blood always gives us two different options for everything, you know, you can pick or choose which one you want to believe. <laughs> uh, do like to believe that it was more of a love match than anything. Anyways, one thing we haven't discussed in depth yet, really, is this, uh, the greens and the blacks, uh, this whole concept or terminology, which is used in Fire and Blood to describe the factions that formed around Queen Alicent and Princess Rhaenyra as their rivalry became entrenched. 
So this uh, the, this whole thing originated at the fifth anniversary tourney, which we described last week as the event in Fire and Blood, where Damon returned from the Stepstones and was reconciled with his brother. That's not what how the way it was presented in the show, but indeed the significant part of that event uh, that was left out. Uh, probably because there was no tourney per se, was that Alicent show up, showed up wearing a green gown symbolizing House Hightower and Rhaenyra was dressed in Targaryen black. They had their uh, their mutual uh, favors given out in the tourney with Kristen Cole actually wearing Rhaenyra's black at this time. So uh, it's it's not yet clear if the show is going to lean into the terminology per se, or if they're just going to use the visual clues. But this episode really did give us that on both sides. Uh, Boy talked about Allison's green dress and the significance of that. House Hightower declaring war. I mean, that's... That is strong. But Emily also noticed that a number of Rhaenyra's allies, especially members of House Valerion and her uncle Damon, were dressed in black. So whether they use a specific terminology to refer to the rival camps or not, the final episodes of the season are actually called the Green Council and the Black Queen. So those are words or phrases that are taken directly from fire and blood. So it's clear that the symbology is going to be as significant going forward as it was in this episode. And one other thing that I wanted to mention, um, it occurred to me earlier, we couldn't say when Yoke Boy mentioned uh, the scene with Melos and Orwile. So you have Grandmaster Melos, and then you have this new maester, Orwile, who's introduced in this episode. Orwell is actually Melos's replacement in Fire and Blood. So uh, all you Melos fans out there, I hate to tell you, he's not going to be with us for probably any longer because there's a 10-year time jump and, you know, hey, maybe uh, maybe he's just going to pass away off screen and we'll never have to deal with Melos and his leeches again. But uh, it is interesting the way they've uh, presented them here, even though they never actually shared duties together in the book. Uh, there's a quote from Fire and Blood. Uh, King Viserys did seem to recover some of his old vigor once the new Grand Maester Orwile arrived at court. Septon Eustace tells us that this was the result of prayer, but most believe that Orwile's potions and tinctures were more efficacious than the leechings that Melos had prescribed. So they show us right there in that earlier scene with uh, the two. You've got Melos wanting to use leeches and <laughs> Orwell sort of slips a little potion <laughs> to, to Lionel. <laughs> like, this could be just a little bit more effective than actually removing the king's blood. So anyways, uh, Yoke Boy, what do you have? Well, scenes that you two light up at the mention of Harwin, I thought I'd talk about him. Yeah, we did talk about how strong in this episode and that appearance from Harwin Breakbone Strong when he scooped up Rhaenyra during the Chaos of the Feast is, of course, highly significant. Book readers know that from Fire and Blood. We know there are many rumours, or there will be in the course of the story at court and among the small folk about the nature of the relationship between Harwin and Rhaenyra. 
This will, of course, be the focus of upcoming episodes, and it will be really interesting to see how the show deals with those dynamics, given that we're doing such a large time jump. Will it be jarring to be in older Rhaenyra's boots and suddenly she's got Harwin in the picture and three children who just happen to look like him? I'm really curious to see how they're going to incorporate this aspect of the story into the flow of the narrative, like I said, without making it feel too jarring or surprising. And at this stage, I do trust the writers to make the correct calls. So although I'm sort of puzzling how it's going to work out, I do have a bit of faith that it will be done well. Harwin's similarity to Rhaenyra's three children with Laenor is going to be noticed and a political enemies will be keen to draw comparisons wherever possible. There were some amusing moments in Fire and Blood where characters like Aemond and others joked about how big and strong the boys looked. Expect both Rhaenyra and Viserys to be less than impressed with anyone asserting that the royal children are illegitimate. And that might be an understatement. Let's wrap things up now. I really want to say a huge thank you to our guest, being a guest on Radio Westeros isn't easy. We do a lot of preparation to try and give you the best performance we, we can. And yeah, it, it's not easy, believe me. And Emily rises to the occasion every time. Thank you so much, Emily, for joining us. Yeah, thank you guys. Uh, yeah, I'm not necessarily, I don't have my own channel or anything like that, but I will mention I do have a couple things upcoming. Um, I will be on Here Be Dragons YouTube channel this Sunday to talk with one of their hosts, Stephen Stark about Dungeons and Dragons. So if that's your thing, would love to see you there. Um, next Wednesday, you can also catch me on Sanrixian's patrons only art stream. Uh, more details can be found on her Twitter or Patreon. And I will also tweet out this information a little later this week. So go ahead and follow me if you are not. Um, thank you again for having me, you guys. I, we're halfway through the season. Can you believe it? I'm not sure whether it's go gone really slow or really quickly. I'm just in a sort of world because I'm just living in it 24-7. But yeah, I'm really enjoying it. And at the halfway point, I think that it's better than most of us hoped for. And we did have high expectations. Okay, so if you would like to follow us on social media, Twitter is the best place. That's where we're most active, at Radio Westeros. Come and join us next Tuesday at 7 on YouTube or get the podcast version thereafter. Okay, and why don't we lead out with uh, shout-outs to our patrons, Lady Gwen. Radio Westeros is supported by patrons. Thanks to all of you, including our Valyrian Steel patrons. Aileen, Akiva of House Hunt, Akka from Ashai, Oxheart, Amber the Adamant, Anna, Hortense of Ashai, Arshia, Blight Spirit... Archmaester Kobe of the Higher Mysteries, Cabot the Unfrozen, Marge of the Mage, David, Dean, James K, Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Jill, Miss Jody, J.M., Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Epimetheus, Juna of House Aiko, Casey, Lady Silverwing, Infendaris, the Unspeakable Terror, Luke, Mark, Boss, Noble Sir Matthew, Sword of the Early Moon, The Sothorian, Sally, Sheila, Tristis Lorian, Wild Child of the Wolfswood, W, Sword of the Evening, and Lady Dyerliz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. And our Castle Steel Patrons, 
AJ, Egg on the Six, The Only Arsling You Need, Alex, Ali B, Ali C, Amber, Ashenot Yara, Oakenfist, Pran the Builder, Brian, Camille, Casey, Charitable Rereadings, Chris, Christian, Maddie and Jessica, Sir Clint the Andal, Sir Duncan Cole, Convenience or Death, Sir Archibald Cadogan, David, Dimitri B, Dennis, Esme, Liza, Emily of the Erie, Ezra, Felix, Sir Gladworth, Greg, History of Westeros, Brynden B. Fish, Goldie Juke, Jim McGeehan, Winter's King, John Aris, Rider of the Ice Dragon, Scenarion, The White Storm, Sir Gage, Armorer of Castle Greyguard, Julie Bath of Tarth, Judson, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Katie, Lady Kelly, Mistress of the Old Bay of Crabs, Mathos of House Baratheon of Dragonstone, Armed with the Valyrian Sword Malice, Tree Girl, Sir Galahoo of what? Lena Snow, known as the Twilight Star, Lemba, Liston, Nessie the Questing Beast, Monaro Geek TV, Maria, Margareta, and our cohort of Matts, Matt A, Matt C, Matt K, Matt L, as well as Lady Beatrix of House Grey, Maester Mary, Michael M, Anime Lover Nicole, Nimble Nick One Irick, Patrick, Peter Pebble, PJ, Paul B, Paul H, Richard, Sam, Sarah, Sean, Sir Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Sir Swift the Peppered Knight from the House of Black and Grey, Shari, Cern, Kaiser Susie of the Free Folk, Terry, Sir Terence, Knight of the Cedars, Theo the Cannibal of Casterly Rock, Hayma Helmint, the Sellsword Sentinel, Valen Valentine, Maiden of the Black Frost, Virginie, Quarren Halfhand, and Yvonne. If you enjoy the podcast, consider being a patron and you could be hearing your name here too. Visit patreon.com slash radioestros for details. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you all again next week. Bye for now. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.